Thank you for uh, coming here on a Sunday. I know that uh, the heat has been interesting, the weather has been interesting, the air quality has been interesting, but it's so great to see every single one of you here. Uh, God is doing something with Encounter Church, and I believe that Encounter Church will reach the pe people of Lodi and disciple students of the Bible. We are being discipled. Um, today we're going to talk about the King, His deliverance, and his people, the king, his deliverer, actually, and his people. We ended last time with the story of Joseph, with the nation of Israel under Egypt. Today, as we open the scriptures, we will see that God loves his people, that God still desires to work with his people, that God has the power to fight so-called gods and that I, I pray that the main goal out of all of this, out of our time here together, is that we may worship, we may glorify God. But we begin today by looking at the state of Israel. Remember again, Israel was with Joseph, was, was enjoying the blessings of, of being under Joseph in Egypt. And if you go to Exodus 1, verse 5, I'll be reading from Exodus 1, verse 5 to 14. We will find here the state of Israel. What, what state was it in in Exodus? Remember, they ended off in a good state. They were in a, in a blissful state in, Ex, in Genesis. Remember, Joseph was over them, blessing them. But now, how, how are they doing? Exodus 1, 5 through 14 reads like this. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Verse 7. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly. That, that word is kind of interesting, shrewdly. Who, who acted like with shrewd, with craftiness in Genesis? Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with Harsh labor in bricks and mortar. Where, where do we find this phrase, brick and mortar? We find it also in Genesis. Maybe if you recall, go back to uh, the Tower of Babel. They built this tower with brick and mortar. And it continues. And with all kinds of work in the fields. And the last verse, verse or last part of verse 14 says, In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You may take a seat if you are standing. 
Uh, if you have your notes with you, feel free to use that. Uh, there are notes available in the back. So we read today about the state of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel came to Egypt with only 70 people. While 70 people is a large family in today's term, it is still not a nation. It is not the type of nation that God promised to Abraham. But we finally see that some sort of answer, some sort of faithfulness is here because God had promised Israel, had promised Abraham that through him he would make a great nation. And now we're seeing that a great nation is developing. It is growing under, under Pharaoh. In a matter of years, this family that started off of, with 70 people had grown exponentially. Israel had been fruitful and had multiplied. Those were commandments of the Garden of Eden. What did God tell uh, the first humans? God told them to go and multiply, to, to be fruitful. And we're seeing that with the nation of Israel. Because now, instead of there being 70, some scholars suggest that there are now millions upon millions. There's a lot of people insofar that a world power, that Egypt, started to fear the Israelites. Imagine if here in America, a world power here in the U.S. or in China, there comes a family of only 70 people. And over a couple hundred years, China or the U.S. starts to fear this family. It's crazy. That's what's happening here. Egypt is starting to fear the nation of Israel. This is also part of the promise that God had made to Abraham. God said that he would make Abraham's children like the number of the stars, just meaning that there's a lot of stars being present that came from Abraham. But unfortunately, while Israel is fulfilling the promises that that God had made to Abraham, while Israel is fulfilling the part of multiplying, Israel is failing to subdue the land. Why? Because they are under Pharaoh. They are under Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, and he realized that the Israelites were becoming far too numerous. In Pharaoh's declaration, we see, again, that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. But Pharaoh acted craftily. He acted with shrewd. Remember the serpent in the Garden of Eden? He also acted with shrewdness towards God's people. And here, Pharaoh has the same type of image as the serpent. He wants to enslave the Israelites, just as the serpent wanted to enslave the humans. And Pharaoh used the Israelites as a source of labor to construct these cities with mortar and these bricks, similar to the Tower of Babel. And Pharaoh was making a great name for himself. Pharaoh caused them to work so much so that they, they felt better by working. They, they were working so much. They were oppressed so much that they, they felt better. Till this day, the Jews celebrate what is called Passover. It's also known as Pash. 
And they eat this, these herbs, if you could see this on the screen. And these herbs, they, they taste bitter. The reason that the Jews, they celebrate uh, Passover by eating these, these herbs that are not good, that don't taste good, the reason that they eat these herbs is so they remember the bitter oppression that their ancestors suffered under Pharaoh. Maybe you can relate a little bit to the bitter lives that the Israelites are experiencing under Pharaoh here. Or maybe you can't. But I, I think we could relate to what one of the Cappadocian fathers said in the 4th century. Gregory of Nazianzus said this, and I think we could resonate with what he said. I have already lived through many posh. That's just another word for Passover. Which was the fruit of a long life. But now I desire a purer posh to depart from this Egypt, the heavy and dark Egypt of this life, and to be freed from the clay and bricks that held us in bondage to pass over to the land of the promise. Gregory enjoyed a long life. But he still felt that in this life, there was suffering. I believe we could join Gregory in hoping for the day when we leave this Egypt of life and enter the land of promise. I believe that we could experience some sort of deliverance here in this life and ultimately experience the ultimate type of deliverance in the afterlife. In this life, we could have joys, a lot of fruit, but at the same time, there is toil, there is work, and there are things that make us feel bitter. And we should hope for deliverance. God brought deliverance to the Israelites. He brought deliverance through a man by the name of Moses. I like how Ephraim the Syrian summarizes the life of Moses Moses started in Egypt. He was held in great honor. Pharaoh's daughter called him her own son. Yet rejecting this, he chose to be a shepherd living in hardship. Many of us know the story of Moses. Moses was an Israelite but grew up under Pharaoh because Pharaoh's daughter had adopted him. And then after recognizing that he, he was a Jew, that he was a Hebrew, that he was a descendant of Abraham, he decided to, he, he witnessed a, a scene that was oppressive and he wanted to do justice and he, unfortunately, he, he murdered, he killed an Egyptian who was oppressing, although he was, he, he was trying to bring justice, but he went too far and he felt ashamed, therefore he ran away. And he became a shepherd. Here's a timeline that could help us visualize what's taking place, the chronology of Exodus. You could see in the beginning, the Israelites, they become slaves in Egypt. Then Pharaoh tries to destroy the Israelites by having all the male children killed, including Moses. But Moses, by the grace of God, by the sovereignty of God, was able to, to flee this this. The decree that Pharaoh had made to destroy all of the male children. And Pharaoh's daughter found Moses. 
But then Moses, he kills an Egyptian and flees to Midian where he became a shepherd. It was as a shepherd, as in this humble role that God called Moses. Let's go to Exodus 3, 1 through 15. Exodus 3, 1 through 15. I'll be reading from the NIV. Exodus 3, 1 through 15 says this. This is the call of Moses. This is when God calls Moses to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has, been, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that, is, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And the last section of verse 15 says this. This is my name forever, the name you should call me from generation to generation. This is an interesting and very powerful scene. Jerry Thompson tries to depict the scene. Uh, You could see up on the screen this picture, and I I feel like you could sense the intensity of the burning bush, which God is speaking through. 
And we also see Moses' response. He takes off his sandals. This is a holy moment. God appears to Moses, the Bible tells us, through a burning bush and speaks through a messenger, the angel of the Lord. Scholars have wondered about the identity of the angel of the Lord because the angel is so connected with God. As we read here, it seems like God is speaking, but in the beginning it says that the angel of the Lord appears. It, It seems like they're very connected with one another. When Moses encounters the angel of the Lord, the Bible says that he's encountering God. There's a distinction between the Lord and his angel, but yet it seems like their identities fuse, like they're interconnected. The text says no more about the relationship between the angel and the Lord and the Lord and God, but begins to describe the burning bush. God used this unnatural phenomenon to get Moses' attention. If you remember other incidents, maybe with Abraham or when we were doing the previous service with the day of Pentecost, we should know that when there is fire, that means that God is present. At least within the scripture, fire is a motif of divine presence. And especially in the ancient Near East, which was the culture of when the Bible was written, Fire was seen as a divine presence, as a divine encounter. Therefore, Moses was, was, was encountering God. And because he was encountering God, he removed his shoes. The removal of shoes or the sandals is a confession of personal defilement and conscious unworthiness to stand in the presence of the holy. Moses was recognizing that he was unholy, but he was also recognizing that God was holy. Others have taken the liberty to interpret these sandals for earthly possessions or things that keep us connected to this world. Ambrose said, for it is said to Moses, when he was desiring to draw near, put off your shoes from your feet. How much more must we free the feet of our soul from the bonds of the body and clear our steps with all connection with this world? Ambrose compares Moses to taking off his sandals to us, disconnecting ourselves from the desires of this world, the desires of this flesh. Gregory of Nazianzus, he makes another comparison. He says that these shoes are comparable to death. And as to shoes, let him who is about to touch the holy land which the feet of God have trodden, put them off as Moses did upon the mount, that he may bring there nothing dead, nothing to come between man and God. In this holy setting, Moses takes off his his sandals, which are probably made from leather, dead animals. And he, t- he took it off. And likewise, we should take sin, things that keep us dead, keep us down. We should remove that when we are in the presence of the Lord. God then responds to Moses. They have a conversation. And this is a flow of the conversation. I have heard and seen, this is God speaking. It's interesting that God hears and sees the oppression. He's aware of it. 
And now this is what he's going to do. You go. He's sending Moses. I will send you to bring out my people. Moses responds, who am I to go to bring out the Israelites? But God says, I will be with you. I have sent you. And here's a sign. Bring them out and worship me. Moses, he gives a lot of excuses. He doesn't want to be the deliverer. And I think we could relate with Moses on saying, who am I? I I, I think we could agree that many of the times we ask the same question when God calls us. Who am I? Ephraim the Syrian, he says something that we could relate to as well. Moses said, who am I to go before Pharaoh? Although I have a royal title, I will not be received by him. And now that I do the work of a simple shepherd, who will allow me to go before Pharaoh? And even if I were let in, what importance would he see in me to believe my words? He, he's, there was at one point, you know, Pharaoh, Moses was under Pharaoh. He was in a place of power. But now Moses is a shepherd. Who would go and make a meeting with the shepherd? That's, that's what's Mo, what Moses is thinking. I mean, we could relate. Imagine if God tells you to go talk to the president and you're like, I'm just a shepherd or I'm just a school teacher or oh, uh, an employee at a bank or an employee at a, at a, at a senior home. Why would the president see me? And here Moses is having a similar idea. Why? Would Pharaoh see me? But let me tell you, if God wants to use you, it doesn't matter where you find yourself. It doesn't matter what role you have, what career you have. It does not matter. If God wants to use you, he will use you. Moses also used the ignorance He used ignorance as an excuse. Maybe he doesn't know enough. He said in Exodus 3.13, if I come to the people of Israel and they ask me, what is his name? What is the name of God? What shall I say to them? Maybe you don't know enough. That's what Moses is saying. I don't even know your name. What am I going to say? But again, if God has called you. It doesn't matter what you know or don't know. It doesn't matter. And again, Moses cites his incredibility. People are not going to believe him. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. But again, it doesn't matter if God has called you. Verse 410, he uses another excuse. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. But God will use you even if you're not eloquent with words. God can use a mute. God could use somebody who's deaf, who cannot speak. God can use you. And then we may use this verse, verse 13, the, verse, the, the words that Moses said. Oh, my Lord, send, I pray, some other person. Let it not be me. I think we can relate with Moses. But know that God could have picked somebody else. 
He could have picked somebody else. But he chose you. He called you for, for such a time like this. In response to Moses' excuses, God revealed his name. What is God's name here? God revealed his character and his name. He, he says that I am who I am. This is where we get the name Yahweh, which is the word behind the capitalized Lord. Maybe you see it within your Bible. Sometimes the word Lord appears in all caps. And each time that that appears, it's referencing Yahweh, the, the holy name, the name that God revealed to Moses in this case. But what does it mean, I am who I am? What is the significance of that? Well, part of it is saying that I have always existed. I am infinite existence. Revelations 8, 4, 8 puts it in other words. God is the one who was and is and is to come. The I am would come and help Moses deliver his people. And to recap Moses' call, I want to show you one of my favorite scenes of uh, a movie that I love, The Prince of Egypt. So if you guys could join me by looking at the screen, uh, I believe it should come up. Um, and play, there we go. Here I am. Take the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground. Ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You were born of my mother, you heaven. You are our brother. What do you want with me? I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry. So I have come down to deliver them out of slavery and bring them to a good land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And so unto Pharaoh I shall send you. Me? 
am I to lead these people? They'll never believe me. They won't even listen. I shall teach you what to say. Let my people go! But I was their enemy. I was the prince of Egypt, the son of the man who slaughtered their children. You've, you've chosen the wrong messenger. How, how can I even speak to these people? Who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Did not I? Now go! One of my favorite scenes, um, I, I love it, I love the work that they did in that movie, um, and it just gives us a visual representation of what, what we read within the scriptures. Moses, he, he, was, he, he was called by God, and God showed him that he's going to be with them, and why was God going to do all of these wonderful signs? Why was he going to use Moses? Why was he going to deliver his people from Egypt? Why was all of this taking place? Exodus 6, 7 gives us the reason. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. God still wanted to be king over his people, even when they messed up, even when maybe they overstayed in Egypt. God still wanted to be the king of the Israelites, and he wanted the Israelites to be his people, and he wants you to be his people. He still wants us to be his representatives. He wants to be our God. He wants, him, he wants us to worship him, and he wants us to represent him. And we see if we continue reading, but we're, we're not going to spend so much time. Um, you could see the signs, the ten plagues. Just know, here's a chart, that each of the plague, each of the plagues showed that God was over a certain Egyptian god. For example, they had a god of the Nile, and God showed that he was over the Nile. There was a god over the livestock, and God showed that he is the one who has power over the livestock. It's so fascinating to see in this chart, like each of the gods, we won't spend so much time on it, but each, 
Each of the plagues represented a certain God, and God is showing to, the, to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, I am truly the God of the universe. I am the one who has the final say. In the final plague, we, we find what is called Passover. Here is a picture of what Passover consisted of. God had told Moses that whatever, whichever household had this mark would be protected. They wouldn't lose their firstborn. Those who had the sign, had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost would be spared. And fortunately, the nation of Israel were freed. They left the kingdom of Egypt. Here's a chronology, a timeline again, that could help us see an idea. So all the plagues took place. They put on the, the blood on the doorpost, and then they were freed. And most of us know the story of the, of the Red Sea splitting, which is on the next slide. Um, and we, we see that the nation of, the, nation of, uh, the army of Pharaoh was, were drowned. Uh, Pharaoh and his army, they were drowned in the, in the Red Sea. And I, I want to conclude, we'll talk about Sinai and their time in the wilderness next time. But I want to conclude with the song of deliverance. The nation of Israel was delivered. And and it's a beautiful scene, and I, I wish I could have been present. But let's go to Exodus 15.1. I just want to read one verse and then the last verse. The first verse and the last verse, and then we will be done. So Exodus 15.1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song. This is the song of deliverance, a song that they sang after they had been delivered. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, he has hurled into the sea. Again, the Prince of Egypt does a wonderful job of showing this, and I want to show it real quick. Uh, they sing this song in Hebrew, and I think it's a great scene that could help us visualize what is taking place when they are singing this. So if we could put our attention to the screen. Yeah. great scene, something to be present of. And let's just reflect a little bit. So the nation of Israel, they were oppressed by the kingdom of Egypt, and God had delivered 
Israel from this kingdom. And they started to sing because they were delivered. Something that happens when we are delivered, we begin to sing. And the last verse of this song, it says, The Lord reigns forever and ever. Pharaoh is no longer king. The Lord is king. This is the song that should have been in the heart of Adam. This is the song that should have been in the heart of every human. Yahweh, God, is king. Not the serpent, not me, but Yahweh, God. Maybe as you were reading this, you could relate to a degree, but this seems like just a history story, something that happened a long time ago. But it is still a wonderful story, and I think it's something that we could relate to. Even though we are not slaves to Pharaoh, we may be or were at one point slaves to Satan. And while we may be flourishing in some areas, there are some areas where we still need to recognize that Jesus is king. I love how Augustine puts it, and we will conclude with this. Augustine, he he makes a comparison. He says this, and I think we could all relate to this. We have been led out of Egypt where we were serving the devil as a pharaoh where we were doing works of clay amid earthly desires, and we were laboring much in them. For Christ cried out to us as if we were making bricks. Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are burdened. Maybe we feel like we're going through oppression, that we're just laboring, building bricks, but Jesus is telling us, Come to me. Let out, let out, let out of here. We were led over through baptism, as through the Red Sea, red for this reason, because consecrated by the blood of Christ. When all our enemies who were assailing us were dead, that is when our sins have been wiped out. If you are in bondage, tired of working by yourself to make your name great by yourself or or to make somebody else's name great, if you're tired of that, come to Jesus who sets you free. Plead the blood of Christ that through the waters of baptisms our sins have been washed away. And if you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, praise our lover, our king, our deliverer, our God, our Christ, who reigns forever and ever. Let us pray there where you are at. Heavenly Father, thank you for everything that you have done. Thank you for your grace, God. I pray that Wherever anyone finds him or herself, Lord, I I pray that you may deliver them from their Egypt, God. Maybe they are right now under the Pharaoh who is Satan, Lord, or the serpent, God, and I, I pray that they may experience deliverance. God, we also recognize that you may call us just as you called Moses and 
And Lord, we may have our questions, our reasons, and we may wonder why you called us, but we are confident in your plan, Lord. I pray that when you delivered us, and right now as delivered people, we may praise you, we may worship you. You are our king. You reign forever. All the rulers of this world, they will only last for so long. And we are thankful, Lord, that you, you hear and see, Lord, the oppression of your people. You see our suffering and you desire to deliver us. And ultimate deliverance comes through Jesus. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.